Good morning, everybody. If you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3 is where we will begin. And as you're turning there, just a couple of announcements on, you know, the Wednesday night, these Ray Vanderland studies. If you can't come here, hopefully we can get him to you maybe when we're done. But um, I was introduced to this video series when I was in Bible college and seminary, and I thought they were really good. But where I fully realized the significance and the quality that they um, they did in this this work is when I had the opportunity to go to Israel and I started realizing how much I actually knew about Israel through this series and how it relates to the scriptures. And and uh, you'll be blessed if, if you come or if you can't come, but you're interested in the videos, we can once we're done with the study, we can kind of pass them around so people can use them in whatever context they would like to use them. And next week, you know, we're Everybody's been getting a little out of control, so we're bringing in a, uh, a pastor from the state penitentiary. Uh, you know, Roger Ziegler is a yard pastor of Yard Three, which is the um, this the, it's it's a what's the right term? It is the maximum sort of security for um, those that need to be separated population and lifers. They're long-term men, and he is the pastor there. Um, in that yard, he does church week to week, um, but twice a year they have this Kairos ministry, which we'll learn about. Um, Kairos is a by invitation from a, an inmate believer to another inmate believer. They lure them in f- by f- free cookies, um, and they go there for the free cookies, all-you-can-eat cookies, and they basically get loved on like they're kindergartners. And and they base there's so many just powerful stories. I know that I've been down there. I know that Bob's been down to the prison, not necessarily Kairos, but there's something uh, when you the thing I love about prison ministry is you don't have to waste a whole lot of time trying to convince them that they're sinners. It's true. Unfortunately, we have to, you know, a lot of people, you have to convince that you have a need for God. And so there when they encounter Jesus, it is just there's vibrance and, and, and it's, it's powerful. And if you would ever like to go, if you're 18 years and older, you can go and I can get you information about how you could go to the closing ceremony. But what we're going to do is to bake cookies, to write letters. Uh, we should have the names by next Sunday, but you can start writing without putting the name on there. Um, and basically on the second day of the retreat, and I say retreat loosely, it's in Donovan State Prison. It's not like it's in uh, Malibu or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> They send them home with these handwritten letters from Christians all over the county. And hearing these guys, they stay up all night reading these letters to them. And they're just weeping. Some of them have been there for 30, 40 years, never received a letter at all during their whole time. And it's amazing what the love of God can do to melt a hardened heart. And so I would encourage you to participate, to pray, and and you'll be blessed next week with Roger. I'm looking forward to it. We'll pray and we'll we'll dive into Luke chapter 3. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, uh, that it's living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit convicts us, that you um, guide us, Lord, that you forgive us, that you are doing a a work that is continuing throughout all the days of our life, in our life, Lord, and we are so thankful. Father, we pray that as we read this story of John the Baptist, We pray, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning, that we would have correct understanding of this text. Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to see how the story fits into our lives. Lord, we desire to to humble ourselves before you. 
Um, Lord, that you would pick us up, that you would help us to walk in your ways. We love you, Father. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, I thought about having a volunteer to read this because there's a couple hard names, but I'll read it myself. And I'm just going to act like I know how to say it. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip were Tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Traconitus, and Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And Father, we do thank you for this text. We pray that you would help us, Lord, as we study it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke, we're, we're hitting a transitional stage. We left the boyhood of Jesus and, and John the Baptist, or we, we moved into when he was 12 years old in the temple last week. 18 years had elapsed. Luke is now going to give us a sort of parameter so the Romans during this time would understand exactly when this story was set. And we're introduced uh, to five people. We have Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius, Ananias, and Caiaphas before John the Baptist is introduced. Each of these men had um, periods that historically we know when they reigned. Um, some of them longer than others, some of them shorter than others. But as we place all of them together on a graph on when they ruled, you can isolate what timeline this happened. Virtually everybody agrees that this story takes place in late A.D. 20, so 26, 27, 28, 29, in that, in that era. We'll see um, in a couple of weeks when Jesus comes on scene, he started at 30 years old. So John the Baptist is probably in his 30s, to just hit 30. He's six months older than Jesus, and he comes on scene. And at the end of verse 2, after Luke identifies all of these leaders to let us know what time frame he's talking in, we read the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. This is very Old Testament. As you read the Old Testament, whenever a prophet of God got a message from the Lord, you would see this phrase, the word of God came to fill in the blank. They would receive a message from the Lord and then they would go out. And as I was re- I'd read the story, this first two verses, I'm like, man, this is just gets my blood pumping. And it's like, game on, John the Baptist, game on. And it reminded me, I'm trying to think of, you know, stories. And I, you know, not everybody here is a baseball fan. Some of us are. And during the Padres, when Trevor Hoffman was here, there was, there was no greater feeling than an important game. So there was like three of them over his like long run. And, it, and Trevor Hoffman was the closer. His job is if the Padres were ahead within, I think it's three runs, 
It was his job to come in in the very last inning and get three outs as fast as he can with as, as few pitches as he could pitch. That's his whole job. So he could go weeks without pitching in a game. He only comes in in these critical moments. The manager picks up the phone, goes out to the bullpen, says, hey, get Trevor warming up. He's about to go. And if you're a fan and you actually care about it, I mean, they darken the whole stadium. All of a sudden you're, dong, dong. Then all of a sudden, I was trying not to say that because we're in church with the Naylor song, but we all know. And and the spotlight goes out to the bullpen. And then Trevor Hoffman, as fast as he can, runs out to the mound. All the lights come on. Fans are on their feet. And it's just exciting. Trevor got the call. It's time for him. He's, this is all he's preparing for is to get three outs. John the Baptist is in southern Israel. He's most likely out in the wilderness outside the west of the Dead Sea. And wilderness, don't think Washington State with pine trees. Think um, Borrego, hot, dry, desolate, nothing there. Likely he was being raised with the Essenes, the people who gave us a Dead Sea Scrolls. He was given, you know, the Nazarite vow. He's there wearing camel hair. He's got essentially dreadlocks because he never cut his hair. He's eating locusts, which are big old grasshoppers and wild honey. This guy was a freak of nature. He stood out. J. Vernon McGee says this about John the Baptist in this passage. He says, John preaches the baptism of repentance. He is the last of the prophets. He is actually an Old Testament character who walks out onto the pages of the New Testament. He is picturesque, unshaven, and shaggy, wearing camel hair clothes. He is different in his dress, his diet, and his looks. He will receive the same reception that many prophets received. He will be put to death. So he comes on. The word of the Lord comes to him. He's the last prophet to speak. He's preparing the way for Jesus. We see that his message was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is different than the baptism that we as Christians do today. We'll talk more about this in the future. But his baptism, in the Old Testament, they would have baptisms, cleansing, washings. As they went to the temple, they would have um, bathtubs, not almost like baptismal tanks, where you would walk down the stairs on the dirty side, meaning that you were dirty. You would cleanse yourself in the, 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 the water. You would walk up on the other set of the steps and you'd go through a series of rituals going to the temple. It was to show you that you were sinful, that you were dirty, that God was holy, there's separation. And so he's proclaiming this sort of baptism. Verse 4, Luke interjects here, quoting from Isaiah, 700 years prior to this, Isaiah speaks. He says, As it is written in the book of words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and he and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And so here John's purpose, he's just a voice in the desert, one crying out. He's nothing. He never claims to be anything. He never claims to be of any value. His whole purpose is to convict Israel of this sin and their departure from God. And this idea of make the path straight, make clear the way of the Lord. When a king during that day would travel, they would send teams out. 
They would clear all the debris off the road. If there were bumps on the road, they would scrape them off. If there were potholes, they'd fill them up. The last service, nobody knew this little bit of trivia about Valley Center. So I was safe because I could say whatever I wanted. This service, I'll check it again. Does anybody know what the name of Colgrade Road was before it was Colgrade? I know some people know you're just probably being shy. It was known as the Highway to the Stars, correct? My old, nobody knows. It was. I don't know where I read it. It's not on Wikipedia, but I saw it. Maybe it was the Valley Center Historical um, Society. And the reason it was called the Highway to the Stars is there's a little telescope on top of Palomar. I have no idea how much that thing costs, or it's probably not the same one. Oh, Valley Center Road was called. Okay, maybe I got the Highway to the Stars. The facts were close. Good enough for my story. (laughs) But when they brought the telescope up to the top of Palomar for the first time, it was a big deal. Apparently, the streets were lined with people as it went by. They paved the road because it was a very expensive piece of equipment, and it was a big deal to bring this telescope up. And so John the Baptist's rule is to prepare the hearts of Israel because the Messiah would come. We'll see in this story that they had started deviating from the Old Testament. They had, they had gone into religion and they thought that the things that they were doing religiously were making them better amongst other men and before God. And so John the Baptist is going to come in. And in verse 7, what we see here is, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the, com- the wrath to come? Reading it this week, I'm like, man, I never noticed that before. This makes it sound like he's, he's going out through the Jordan, preaching this baptism of repentance. Crowds are coming as they come. Then he scolded them. Oh, you brood of vipers. Who told you to come? And I was talking with Benjamin. Well, two Bens, Ben and Benjamin on Friday night. And I'm like, man, you guys, I, got, I really need to change my baptisms. I never noticed this before. I, we need to have baptisms. And then as people come, I'm just going to start heckling them. And their sin is to come into the water. <laughs> just start making and, and I looked at little Isaac and I was like, man, you got lucky last time. You were in the last wave of... And I'm like, but this can't be right. I'm like, how, like, how did I not see this? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, I'm not going to go there, but it gives a kind of a, a broader picture. See, as John the Baptist is going through around the Jordan River, the river that goes from, flows from north to south, from the Galilee to the Dead Sea, he's in that region. He's proclaiming the baptism. Word is spreading. Who is this guy? We haven't seen a prophet in 400 years. And so people started to come and were told that as they were going into the river, they were telling him their sins. Crazy. I mean, this is not something that would work in American culture, uh, you know. And I, and I think this was unusual. They're, they're, they're confessing their sins to him out loud. He's heckling people. We're going to look at what he said to Herod. He's heckling people, calling them out for their sin. People are coming. And in Matthew chapter 3, we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come to the river to see what was going on. They were not going into the river to be baptized. And he looks at them and he says, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And going through Isaiah this year, the thing that's really jumped out at me over and over and over again. And as we go through the Gospel of Luke, the people who get the most amount of verbal sort of lashing and discipline from the Lord are the religious. 
Those who thought, and I think we as a church have to take this to heart. And so then he tells him, who warns you from the wrath of come? Verse 8, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And as he says this, I, I almost imagine John the Baptist hearing them with their smug look on the banks of the river saying, what are you talking about? We're children of Abraham. We're Pharisees. We're Sadducees. We keep the law perfectly. Who are you, you hippie-looking weirdo eating crickets and honey? Off the, you know, we dress right. We do all of our religious things. Paul the Apostle, prior to his conversion in Philippians, he tells us, he says, according to the law, I was blameless. He, in his mind, thought he was sinless before God, that he had done all of the religious things. And as John the Baptist can hear them saying this very thing, he says, the second part of verse 8, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He said, don't think because you're of the nation of Israel that that's your disclaimer to get into this, the heaven. God is looking for something else. The end of Isaiah 66, verse 2, at the end of that verse, it says, God's speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word, that God wants to see humility in heart, to step back and realize that no matter how righteous you think you are in your own works, God's holiness far exceeds anything that we're able to do. When I first joined the Navy, I was, I was a young man. I was, you know, at this point it was the fall, so I was about three months out of high school. I think I was, I was 19 at the time. And I found myself in Virginia Beach. And one of my funnier Navy stories, or most funny, um, I really thought I was in trouble. So we, there were a group of us that were going to go to the SEAL training. We were E1. E, I might have put on E2. Very, very junior. My, my, my life requirements were to take out the trash and to mop and to exercise to prepare for buds. And other than that, don't get into trouble. I almost had them all down. I got in a lot of trouble during those times. And so during one of the times when I was working out, I was down in the weight room, but I was taking a little bit of a nap. And all of a sudden over the intercom, I hear Seaman Hansen report to the commanding officer's office. I'm like, what did I just, like, I'm in, like, shorts and a T-shirt, napping. I'm like, oh, what I do? And my brain starts running through every possible thing. I'm like, I don't remember doing anything that would get me called up to the commanding officer's office. The commanding officer at the time was an 06, which was a captain in the Navy. So I'm like, man, do I change? And then he said it again. And this time it was the CEO saying it. Like it was his, I'm like, I better get up there now. So I, Seaman Hansen reporting to the commanding officer's office, you know, how can I help you, sir? He's like, come and sit down. And I, I'm, man, this is not a guy, I didn't even know his name. I didn't, never wanted to look at him. And here I am in his office sitting down going, sir, what, can I, how can I help you, sir? He's like, I need you to explain something to me. I'm like, I am in so much trouble, and I have no idea what I did, but my conscience has bothered me. He said, can you tell me why Admiral Lesses, so an admiral's higher than the captain, why Admiral Lesses' secretary is calling me 
asking for Seaman Hansen to call him at his convenience. And I'm like, oh, I can explain that, sir. See, Admiral Les and my dad went to the Naval Academy together, and he's about to retire, and he probably wants me to go. And he's like, I've never in my whole career had an admiral calling for a seaman to call him at Mike at his convenience. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Sir, he's like, get on the phone right now in my office and call us. I'm like, hello, this is Seaman Hansen. They're like, oh, your dad's, you know, friend, he wants you to come to his retirement ceremony. It's going to be a big deal. And, and I'm like, well, well what, si- what sort of uniform should I wear? They're like, eh, it'd be best for you not to wear a uniform. Just come in civilian clothes because it'd be a little awkward for a seaman to be hanging out with an admiral's family during the retirement ceremony. And I remember, like, walking in there and all these Marines are saluting me. And I'm like, do you know if you guys knew? I'm, like, more junior than you walking into this thing. And the point of this to be called into the Lord's presence is far greater than before any man. And, and my whole attitude is an E1. I recognized, even in civilian clothes, when they're treating me as part of the admiral's party, I knew who I was. There was nothing special about me. I did not deserve to be in this crowd. But it's all about who you know, even in heaven. It's about knowing Jesus. And because I knew Admiral, I didn't even know him, but my dad knew him. And I, I think I met him when I was a little kid in the Pentagon once. But I, you know, I didn't have any idea what was going on as a little kid at that situation. But before the Lord, we know. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. If you know who the Lord is, it's a great thing to be brought into his presence. And the only reason we're able to be brought into his presence is because Jesus died on the cross. Jesus paid it all. And I want to be very clear. See, John the Baptist is preaching this, this baptism of repentance. And it's easy for us as people because our whole economy, everything that we know, if you want something, you have to earn it. If you're going to get something, you have to pay for it. And so the whole concept of being able to be made right with God because Jesus died on the cross. It doesn't make sense. And so we kind of get in our minds that he bridged the gap for us to a distance that we could cross on our own strength. And so we start thinking that we can do good deeds. Or you could even be a Christian that you truly trusted by faith. Then you forget where you've come from. You start living your life for the Lord. You've done all the right things. And I've And I've seen Christians go two different directions in sort of an arrogance. On one end of the spectrum, I have friends in the ministry who believe the utmost spiritual thing that they can do is to equip their children and send them in to secular environments. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. They send them to public school. They're in public school. They do all this stuff. And then they look at everybody else and say, well, my children are light in the Lord. They're being a light into the world, and we're better than other Christians. I don't think that's how it works, bro. Like, I've challenged them. And on the other end of the spectrum, I have other Christian friends who are, well, we've pulled ourselves out of the world. We homeschool. We are better than everybody else because of this. And see, it's the attitude of the heart. The, thing, the actual things aren't necessarily bad. But suddenly when you start thinking the way you live, it makes you elevated over other people and not as a seaman in the admiral's office recognizing that it's only because of something that somebody else did, not of anything I did on my own behalf. 
And as a Christian, this is where I struggled most growing. Is see, because I'm kind of was like a clown. I liked, you know, having, you know, I like laughing. I shared with you that I last week that I, I really thought that Paul Blart Mall Cop was going to be a good movie. Like I, like I have just a different sort of sense of humor. And I would look at my life and how God was working, but it wasn't matching. And I could never, I was an adult. I could never be raised in a Christian home. I could never be kind of discipled in Christianese and to do all the other stuff. And so I felt horribly guilty because I thought if I wanted to be right with God, I needed to, to look like whatever your stereotypical Christian looks like. And so I was trying to be something that I wasn't. And instead of saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to be? What is living submitted to Christ and abiding in him look like in my life? And then there was great freedom. When I came to the recognition, it's like, no, the Lord has done a work in my life and I need to be obedient to him. And no matter what he does, we need to have the eyes of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter five says we no longer see people according to the flesh. If the Lord has blessed you with opportunities to grow in your family. Like with my little girls, they're, they're getting raised in a way that's so far from how I was raised as a pastor's kid. So I need to be very careful when we go places. I don't judge other people. Jesus died for all of these people. He loves them. We go into the prisons. These are murderers. It's hardcore. Some of them have, none of them have death sentences, but many of them have ex, like murdered people and are serving multiple life sentences. Be very easy to say, oh, they deserve it. No, Jesus on the cross paid for that sin. So we need to have the attitude in our heart. Man, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And anything, anything that I could possibly boast in, it's only because of the cross. It's only his work in my life. So John the Baptist is hitting them hard, these religious leaders. And I love later in Luke, Jesus is going to tell a parable of, of the Pharisee who's praying in front of everybody at the temple saying, I tithe, I give 10%. I pray three times a day. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector. And Jesus says the tax collector on the other side of the temple won't even look up at God, but he's beating his chest saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus says, that's the man that God is after. Because we realize how holy God is. And I love the apostle Paul that through the course of his life, he's writing a huge portion of the New Testament that guides Christians today in the church. And we see this progression saying that I was the least of all Christians. I was the least. No, no, he starts from I was the least of all the saints. Then he goes all the way down to, I was the the worst sinner of all Christians. And I don't think Paul's life, that he was getting worse as a spiritual man, as he's walking with the Lord, what he was doing was coming into a greater appreciation of how holy God is and how truly separated that we are from God and how great the cross was and what Jesus did. And so as he's telling them to bear fruit of repentance. Repentance, this, this word in the Greek is metanoia. It's to change the mind concerning an action afterwards. And I want to be careful because sometimes we think, or I've thought, Jesus paid for 80%. There's 20% to, to bridge the gap. So repentance means that I need to change my behavior and then when I start getting all my ducks in a row and I'm living the way that a Christian's supposed to live, then at that point, I receive salvation. 
And it's easy for us to fall in this trap. So metanoia sounds a little bit like metamorphosis. The you know little worm that turns into a butterfly or a caterpillar that turns into metamorphosis, that there's a change. The idea is in our minds. I love that Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, don't forget, don't think lightly that it was the kindness of God that led you to repentance. That Jesus, before he ascended, he said, I'm going to send the spirit to convict you of sin. And so then we get convicted of sin. Our minds, we realize we reach this point where our life is on a course that's going against God. And we realize that we need a savior. And then we say, Lord, I believe in our mind, we're acknowledging God's way is the correct way, our way is the wrong way. We need to change our, our, our opinion about our, our previous thoughts. Say, God is right. We can still struggle with our life. For me as an early Christian, I, I truly believe I was saved, even looking back now that I have my theology and stuff. And I was a Christian, still living two lives. And I remember almost laughing at one point in my life, thinking, oh, I'm out drinking. But I reached this point when I'm like, oh, I want to go have a good time with the guys. And I'd crack a, a beer or I'd pour some alcohol and I'd start drinking. And instead of like getting like warm and fuzzy and having fun, it was like I suddenly just was like feeling sick. I'm like, how can I be like, how can I be feeling like I'm getting sick from alcohol after one sip? And it took me a few months because then I tried to go, well, if I just drink a little bit more, I'll get over this, you know, then. But it didn't. I just kept getting feeling worse. And then that whole understanding of 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says we're new creatures in Christ. Suddenly I realized that my mind changing, that I'd received the Spirit of God when I converted. Suddenly I'm this new creature. My whole, like, you know, if I was a foot, my foot changed sizes. And now I'm trying to fit into the old shoe, but it doesn't work anymore. And what used to bring me joy just brought me misery. And I realized it was almost kind of funny. I was like, Lord, you are hilarious. Like this thing that I used to really struggle with, it's gone because now it just makes me miserable. It doesn't even, it doesn't, there's nothing in it. And he says, therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So it's not earning salvation. It's the idea that as we give our lives to the Lord, as the spirit indwells us, which we're going to talk about later today, then we suddenly start bearing fruit that is not ours and is of the Lord. And sometimes this stuff is totally, it seems like semantics because the outward action looks the same, but God cares about the condition of the heart. You could be doing all of the same things, living for the Lord, and you're doing it to be pleasing for him out of gratitude of what he's done. Or you can do all of that same stuff thinking that you're earning favor with God, that you're earning your salvation. Say, it looks the same for us as humans, but for God, it's vastly different. And I want us to understand the difference. So hopefully I'm making sense today. So as he's calling people out for their sin, he's, they're coming to him, they're being baptized. He sees the Sadducees pull up on sea and he says, who warned you, you brood of vipers? You're, you're just wicked. You're, you're, you're profiting off of these people thinking that you have this special connection with God. And so that people hear this in verse 10 and three groups are going to ask a question. He says, well, bear fruits that are in alignment with repentance. And so we're going to see the crowds. We're going to see tax collectors. We're going to see soldiers asking him essentially, what shall we do now? 
We've publicly come. We've repented. How do we get our life straight? So verse 10, the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer them and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. So he says, listen, you've repented. Fruit, if you have two tunics, a tunic was like an inner liner of a jacket that kept you warm. If you saw somebody that didn't have one and they're cold and you have excess, share with them. If you have food and you see somebody who's starving, give them some. Then the tax collectors who were hated. And I would say that there's a, we have the still tax collectors are not really there. Yeah, nobody really likes the IRS. This one really bridges the 2000 year gap really well because everybody knows about the tax man. But the tax collectors back then were worse than today. You see, they got their money. They would go out. The, the, whoever was the governor, whoever was in control, they would know who the people were. They were required to get X amount of dollars from every person. They would make their pay whatever extra they could get. So you could owe the tax man $10, but if he could get 1000 out of you, that $990 he would keep for his own profit. And so they would manipulate and st- however they could get, they would take it. So they would extort more money than they were entitled. And so they ask him, what shall we do? Like, we're the outcasts of society. Like, remember, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Like, they were all, like, in bad category. And so then John the Baptist responds, and he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered. So I don't know if, like, part of what they were ordered to get, like, they were entitled to a certain percent of that $10 or what. But there was a limit. He said, just take what you're supposed to take. Don't take an excess. Then the soldiers, or these would be like the Israeli police, um, maybe not militaries we're thinking today. They question him and say, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. So don't go up to people, point your guns in their face, say, empty out your wallet. Don't be a criminal. Don't accuse anyone falsely. Don't arrest somebody saying that they did something that they didn't do. Be honest. And then he says, be content with your wages. And so in these three responses, I see fruit bearing in the life that's before the Lord in two main categories. First is that there's a content heart. And then their actions towards others, they view people the way God would treat people, the way you would want to be treated. And we can't do this unless our hearts are right before the Lord. When our hearts are right vertically, we can be okay horizontally with other people. And so then verse 15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat uh, into his barn. And, but he will burn up the shaft with an unquenchable fire. And so all of the crowds are gathering. Who, obviously, John the Baptist was a prophet. He was, he was acting and behaving in a way that the people who saw him led them to question, could this be the Messiah? 
And John the Baptist quickly says, no, I am not the Messiah. I'm baptizing you with water, but one is coming referencing the Messiah. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. See, we as Christians following Pentecost, we have the Spirit of God within us after conversion. This was a new thing, not an Old Testament thing. All through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come. He would come upon people for a season, and then he would depart for them. That's why we don't pray David's prayer in Psalm 51. Lord, don't take your spirit from me. It's a different era. And so here we see that there's a difference in baptisms. And, and I'm forced to kind of explain some baptisms. I, I, I hope I can do it clearly. I hope I'm not giving you too much. Last service, I felt like I went a little overboard, so I'm going to try to scale it back to the important things. Scriptures reference, there's five baptisms. I didn't know about this until like seminary, so I don't know if I'm doing a disservice to you by explaining them. The Old Testament kind of will, will categorize as John the Baptist's baptism. His baptism was different than the other baptisms. His was a kind of a ceremonial cleansing. It was a baptism of remission of sins, so that you're doing this act to symbolize to show that you're dirty, that you're filthy, that you need to be washed as you come before the Lord. Then we see Jesus' baptism, which we're going to look at today briefly and concluding with. Now, Jesus was baptized by John, but was Jesus with sin? No. Yet John was baptized, his baptism was a baptism of, of repentance for the remission of sin. And Jesus gets baptized with him. We have a problem because Jesus never sinned. Jesus was God. And so we can't quite categorize Jesus' baptism with anybody else's baptism. No, it can't be duplicated. Jesus went, think he did it as to endorse John the Baptist, to validate his work. It was the beginning of his public ministry at 30 years old. After his baptism, God the Father speaks from heaven and addresses Jesus, which we'll look at. And a dove descends with the Spirit. It was radical. Baptism number two. Baptism number three and and number four get kind of blurred together. I'm going to separate them. The third baptism is the baptism of the Spirit. In charismatic circles today, unfortunately, this, this understanding of the baptism of the Spirit, I believe, gets distorted and adds confusion from what the Scripture says. And so I want to show the baptism of the Spirit from the Scriptures So if you have your Bibles, go with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. And in Ephesians chapter 1, this is a great letter. I think it covers the Christian life. Um, If I was only able to choose one book of the Bible to take with me for the rest of my life on the desert island, so I'm taking a totally make-up situation that I'll never be in, Ephesians is the one I would take because it has everything is there in concise form. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13... Paul speaks to these saints who are in the region. This is a bunch of different churches in modern-day Turkey. And he says, In him, that's Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So he identifies, he says, After you heard the gospel, the gospel according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses, it said that according to scriptures, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. After he was executed, he was buried. Three days later, he rose, walked the earth for 40 days. He appeared to hundreds of people, and then he ascended into heaven. And so that's the gospel, that Jesus was executed for your sin. He was buried. He rose again. And in believing in him, you have life. That's the gospel. 
So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, after you heard the gospel, so you heard it, just hearing it, just knowing it doesn't save you. He goes on to say, having also believed, so you take this truth of what the gospel is, you identify with it, and you say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, Jesus died for me. Yes, I believe in what he did so that I could have life with God. That after you believed, you were sealed in him with the, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So here we're told that a person who's apart from Christ hears the gospel, they hear the gospel, they recognize the gospel to be true, they, they take it on to their own life by believing. We're told at that moment of belief that the Spirit comes into your life, seals you. This is an idea that a king, when he wanted to give an order, he would take his ring with a, a signet in it and he would stamp it into the, 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 um, the wax. And you couldn't undo this. This is like a letter. I don't know if anybody really follows it, but a letter, anybody can open a letter. It's just sealed with a little spit. Or if you use a sponge, you know, with this tap water or, you know, or bottled water, if you're really high speed, I don't know. I lick them off track here. But you can't open that letter on your own unless it's to you with the federal government's authority coming down on you. And so this idea of sealing, it's permanent. It's, it's eternal life that it's a down payment guaranteeing you eternal life that God has given you the spirit. And see, there's confusion's been added that, oh, well, the, the baptism of the spirit, some will say, no, you believe and you're good. And then after you do certain amount of things, then you, you flip the switch or you do the right thing. Then you get the second coming of the spirit in your life. And that's not in scripture. Now, some of us, before we're Christians, might believe in Jesus. And it's like there's a radical, man, God does something. Just to, You have peace, joy, all of this stuff comes into your life. And you're like, wow, the spirit came upon me and my life was radically different. Or you're like me, you know, I, I trusted in the Lord. I became a Christian. Life kind of went on. Eventually, a couple years later, went to seminary. And then I read this and it's like, wait a minute. When I believed, I was sealed in the spirit. And the spirit of God's been working in my life. And like, this is why my life's kind of different is because the spirit is within me. Now go with me as you're heading back to Luke. Stop at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm giving you guys the cliff notes of seminary. There's about five things in all my years of seminary that I think every Christian should know. This is one of them. You don't have to go waste your money if you don't want to. It's all right here for us. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, bless you, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And in Bible college, my professor said something that transformed my life. He, on the whiteboard, he drew two big circles. And in the middle of the one circle, he wrote Adam. And in the other circle, he wrote in Christ. And then he drew a line from the center of Adam into the in Christ. So the arrow went into in Christ. And on that little arc, he wrote 1 Corinthians 12, Verse 13. And so what he was saying to us is before you were in Christ, before you trusted in Jesus, you were in Adam. You were in sin. You were separated from God. When you believed in the gospel, as Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says, 
At that moment of sealing, when the spirit comes, the spirit of God has placed you from the body of Adam into the body of Christ, sealed until the day of redemption. So that's the baptism of the spirit. You could write books on this, but this is the Cliff Notes version, the most basic of what we need to understand. Now, the fourth baptism described, the first one was John the Baptist, Old Testament sort of baptisms. We have Jesus' baptism. We have the spirit of baptism. The fourth is normally described as the as water baptism, but this gets confusing when we're talking about John the Baptist because he's dunking people in the water. So I've kind of labeled it Christian baptism. What's the deal? Why do we as Christians get baptized? Christian baptism is different from John the Baptist baptism, and we know this as we work our way back to Luke, stop in Acts chapter 19. So in Acts chapter 19, I'm not going to read this story, um, but Paul, as he's, as he's going through on his missionary journey, he comes to a group of people that were God-fears. They, they loved the Lord. They had received some sort of truth. And in verse, um, so this is Apollos. And, okay, so verse, verse 1 of chapter 19. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. And found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And so here they are. They'd gotten the message, the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist had spread to them. Some 20, 30 years had elapsed. They still hadn't heard about Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. Paul says, what have you been baptized in? Oh, we received the baptism of John. He said, okay, let me explain the gospel to you. You need to get baptized again after trusting in Christ when you receive the Spirit. And so here, Christian baptism, it's a symbol. I often, it's on there tight today. I have a wedding ring. I just took it off and it's on the table. Am I still married? I'm still married. If I was not married and I put a wedding ring on my finger, does it make me married? No, this is simply a symbol. Is there a bomb about to go off? I hear. I don't don't know. We'll ignore it. Hopefully we'll all live through this. Um, We all know Jesus. This is the time. (laughs) I don't know. I hear people. And so... Christian baptism is a symbol. It's an outward action of something that's happened on the inside. After we become a Christian, we get baptized. We don't get baptized to to earn our salvation with God, to make us right with God. After we've believed in Jesus, immediately throughout the New Testament, I think because they had clarity of what was going on, they would get baptized right away. Today in churches, we could still do it right away. We want to give people kind of understanding to make sure that they don't think that baptism is saving them. And so a Christian, when they're dunked, they've already trusted in Jesus. They all got all kind of beeping happened here. This is like the forcing me to ADD. Stay together, man. (laughs) So when you get baptized, you go underwater. It's a picture of your old life in Adam. You've already received the Spirit. You're already a Christian. And then when you come up, it's a picture of new life in Christ. Ah, relief. Uh-oh, I thought we were going to a different one. Um, and so baptism is showing what's happened in the heart. 
It's, it's a time to stand publicly and say, you know what, I've trusted in Jesus. It's an opportunity for us as we baptize someone out of obedience to the Lord because the Lord was baptized. He told us to go, therefore, and baptize all nations. And so we, we do it out of obedience. We want to follow his example. And then as we're there, we're able to present the gospel to friends and family that came or come. If you want to know more about baptism, summer's coming out in a flyer every week. There's these little blue things. They help explain the purpose of baptism. Don't be embarrassed about baptism. I, I was baptized a number of times. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and so I was baptized as an infant. I have pictures. I have no recollection of it happening. I became a Christian. I started living my life for the Lord slowly. I then kind of started feeling convicted that I needed to get baptized because I started reading the scripture. It's like, well, baptism seemed that it wasn't something that somebody else could do for you, and it followed belief. And and I'd become a Christian, and I started going to Moody Bible Institute correspondence Bible classes. I started getting really convicted. But, man, I am prideful because I, my problem with getting baptized that second time was like, man, I've like been a Christian now for like, like three whole years. And... It's been three years. Now I'm taking Bible college classes through correspondence. And if I get baptized again, it's like taking a step backwards. And it's like having to like humble myself. No way, Jose. So my solution to alleviate my guilt was on a, a night dive with my buddy. We were going into the San Diego Bay, and, and we are tied to each other. And as we are walking out, it's dark. I just threw myself in the water, stood up, baptized myself, following belief. Had a witness, and he said, what, what, what happened? Did you just trip on something? I'm like, no, nah, dude, I just baptized myself. Don't worry about it. And we kept, we kept going. We went on our dive, and then, you know, then the Holy Spirit, you know, started convicting me again. They said this was a female Holy Spirit. It was my wife, Anna. But we met, and we started talking, and she started asking about my baptism. You know, she was, you know, vetting me out to see if I was, uh, you know, that she should keep, you know, interest in me. I said, oh, yeah, I was baptized as a kid, but I got baptized, you know, it was really cool. I did on a Navy SEAL sort of op, you know, kind of like, it's classified, you can't talk about it. She started saying, wait a minute, do you know what baptism's all about? I'm like, you're making me feel guilty, cut it out. And so then on my third baptism, I did it in Denver after a marathon in front of everybody, and it was like the right way, everything was alleviated, and... So don't be embarrassed about baptism. It's not. It's 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 an act of obedience. It's a joyful thing, and it's a great excuse for us to have a barbecue. So we do it during the summer. I mean, it's just. I mean, it's just so much fun, and there's so much joy watching people and hearing their story of the Lord working in their life. Okay, so John the Baptist identifies that his baptism is different than Jesus's baptism, and I fear like me, you're still in Acts 19, and you need to go back to Luke chapter three. And in Luke chapter three, verse. 18, after he kind of deals with baptism, I forgot the fifth one, and I'll, I'll deal with the fifth baptism. It's baptism by fire. You'll find this baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, I believe. Is that what's back there? Yes. Yeah. And what this is, we're told at the end of our life, when we stand before the Lord, our lives, God is going to have an incredible PowerPoint presentation of our life somehow where every thought, every action, every deed, he's going to kind of sift through it. And when they are refining gold, they burn gold, and, and the nasty stuff comes to the top, and they scrape off the nasty stuff, and what's left is, is the pure, pure gold. And it's this refining process. So everything 
that we did that was not based on good word or good, or good thoughts, right intentions, built upon Christ. These are going to burn away, not for punishment, for purity as we go into heaven, that our good deeds will be refined. It's a joyous sort of celebration. And I, will, I, have to, I haven't been through it yet, so I'll let you guys know how it goes. You know, once I see you up there, we'll all talk about our refining <laughs> process. But we're not going to remember the bad stuff. We're going to just, because there's, there'll be no more, he's going to wipe the tears away. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more sadness. So all that, all that junk is gone. It's going to be great. And so then he moves on from this, that, that his, Jesus' baptism is going to be very different from John's baptism. And verse 18 we read, So many other exhortations he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison and ultimately killed John. I want us to go to Mark. It's not up here. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Mainly because I think that this is a really funny story. And it's, we're not going to touch base with John the Baptist after we leave this week. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 14, we read that King Herod heard of it, that his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And this is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he's a prophet like the ones of prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison for the account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death so he could not do so. Um, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Listen, he was perplexed and he enjoyed listening to him. What did Herod hear about him? Herod, what's not mentioned in the text, basically John the Baptist is calling him out for living in sin because he's with his brother's wife, who is also his niece. And so there's there's this incestuous, incestuous relationship. It was his brother's wife. It was wrong every which way you sliced it. John the Baptist is confronting him boldly of his sin. And Herod kind of liked it. He kind of enjoyed hearing this guy. He didn't want to hurt him. Ultimately, he throws his party. Herodias, his brother's wife, who he's with, her daughter was going to dance. They struck a deal. Herod said, oh, whatever you want, I'll give for you. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on the platter. Ultimately, they behead John. And that's the end of John's life. Back to Luke. So Luke, I mean, John the Baptist, calling people out for their sin. People are approaching him, confessing. He's preparing the heart to receive the Messiah. His life would end as mo- almost all of the prophets ended. And in verse 21, Luke is going to kind of back up. See, he took us to the arrest and imprisonment of John the Baptist. But see, Luke's purpose is to investigate who Jesus is. Who is this man that was amongst us? And so from verse 21 through the rest of Luke, Luke is transitioning to Jesus. John the Baptist's whole purpose was to pave the way to prepare the hearts to receive the story of Jesus. So he's going to back up before he's arrested, 
But he's transitioning into who Jesus is. And we read in verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And so Luke's going to take this story. We're going to get fascinating. The rest of chapter 3 is genealogy. And don't you guys just love genealogy? We're going to go right through genealogy. We're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. But the story's looking. He's, now we're to the meat of the story. And we're going to start looking at the life of Christ. And today as we are going to take communion. And then looking at the story, I've been praying. That communion is our time where we come before the Lord, we reflect, we confess our sin before the Lord. We're told in 1 John 1, 8, that when we confess our sin, God is faithful. He makes us righteous for, through forgiveness. Sometimes this whole forgiveness issue and salvation and repentance, there's a blurring of the lines. See, first for someone who's never trusted in Christ, if you want to have eternal life, life with God. It's a, it's a one-time sort of deal where you believe, you trust. At that moment, you're sealed in the Spirit. If you've not trusted in Christ, communion is not really for you. But if you want to become a Christian, it's as simple as believing. And then communion is for you. For those of us who are Christians, we struggle with sin. And if you can't think of anything, you've got pride issue, is the bottom line. And that's a sin. So you can confess pride. But for us in our flesh, as we struggle this side of heaven, I love the couple's dinner. My chancellor, when Dr. Hare came and spoke, he reminded me of something I heard in Bible college sitting under him. He said, the Christians have three parts of their life. You have the unregenerate part, the part of your life before you were a Christian. You have the second part, which is the part in Christ where you've become a Christian. So from now until death, you have to learn kind of how to live your life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord before you die and go and be with God in eternity forever. And his main point was that the Bible is the answer of how we learn how to do this. For the non-regenerate person, they're already dead. They don't know Jesus. They've they're separated from God, and then when they die, they go in eternity in separation from God. There's two parts. And so communion, the first part for us, as we're in the second part of our life, learning to walk with the Lord, struggling with our flesh, it's a time to say, Lord, I've blown it. I need help in this area. Sin for a Christian, it doesn't, we're not cast away into hell. We're convicted. Conviction is a good thing. Pain is a good thing. People who don't feel pain, it's very dangerous. The fact that you put your hand on the fireplace and your instinct is to pull away can save your life. Those that can't feel pain, their body will get eaten away. And so for Christians, we've been given this conviction of guilt, not of condemnation, that we confess, that we come to the Lord, we repent, we say, Lord, get me back on track, and he gets us on track. Our relationship with him is restored. And so what we do is we have the cracker and the juice. Communion is a time when we go, ah, it's just a little cracker. And there's another feature that we've upgraded this week that I want to share you to keep your hands out of, unless these are different crackers. It dawned on me that these, it's not for the super Christians, so don't think about, you know, don't, don't. 
there's there's a number of people who have like gluten intolerance. They can't have wheat, and it kind of dawned on me like, wait, what do you guys do for communion? Like, no, we don't take the cracker. I'm like, well, can you get me like, how do I get the right crackers? So if you have any allergies, like that's like those are for allergy people, so you can take communion with us. But we're reminded this broken cracker. Ah, oh, Jesus died on the cross for me. Any sort of like from a human perspective of growth spiritually from like being a, a, a sinner to like, oh, you're righteous because you go to church and you study the Bible takes us back to the cross and say, our righteousness is but filthy rags before the Lord. He went to the cross, paid for our sin in full. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He did the work completely for me. I have nothing but an attitude of like Gunner as an E1 standing before the admiral, realizing that it was because of who I know. When we go into the Lord's presence, it's not because of our good works. It's because Jesus we know as Savior. The second part, it's a new covenant. Jesus rose from the dead. It, he did not get stuck in the grave. He rose, gave us life. We no longer have to fear death. We have the good news. We're reminded to go out and to proclaim the good news. And I don't know what the next step is for you. For some of us, it might be baptism. For some of us, it's just like, Lord, here I am. I'm willing to be used by you. In our bulletin, I've changed it. I'm convinced that part of growing spiritually requires service. Not for salvation, but for spiritual development. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we all know, for grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Gunner's version. But Ephesians 2, 10 says, you were created for good works. Let us walk in them. So God might be calling you to serve in some capacity. I don't know. My role is to help you find your niche with the Lord. My job as a pastor is to help the saints serve in the ministry and to work. I'm not in ministry because I'm a pastor. I'm in ministry because I'm a Christian. And it just happens that this is the role that God has given me. And when I look at John the Baptist and his life and his example in, in relation to communion, I thought it would be appropriate today instead of just passing out the communion to everybody because it's really easy to take it and not to, you know, maybe you don't even want to take it and you just take it because you feel whatever. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of start communion in silence because a lot of times the people in the worship team, like it's like, oh, they got to come up here and start singing and they don't get time to, to kind of experience communion. And so I'm going to pray and after I pray, I'm just going to, Get the communion stuff sort of ready, and I'm going to sit down with my elements. And when you're ready to come up and just get your elements, walk to your seat and take communion when you're ready. And then we'll sing songs once, like once we're going to end with a couple songs. But after the worship team has basically taken communion on their own, I've given them the freedom just to take communion. And then once they're ready, they'll start. So let's pray. Father, Lord, I just thank you so much, Lord, for this life that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, Lord, that we can't even begin to fathom. Lord, we talk about the cross. We talk about being redeemed, that you've credited our account with your righteousness. Lord, we, we just don't get it. We can kind of understand, but we just really don't understand the magnitude. So, Father, we pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we would be able to sense the magnitude of your holiness, your righteousness, 
your power as creator. That we would feel this divide that we have with you apart from Christ. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came to earth as God, that he humbled himself, that he lived the perfect life, that he never sinned and he stood condemned on the cross. And as the nails were driven into his arms, into his ankles, the weight of the world's sin was placed upon him, that he bore our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, I pray for each person here. Lord, we are all in varying places of our walk with you. And so, Lord, if there are people here who are not sure about their their salvation in you, Father, I pray that your spirit would, would lead their hearts, Lord, to believe in you, to a saving faith in Christ. And, Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what was done on our behalf. Father, that we would abide with you, as John wrote, that we wouldn't have to shrink away when you appear. Father, we want to walk closely with you. And we pray now, Lord, as we're about to receive communion, as we reflect on the broken body of Christ. Father, we pray that you would, Lord, that your spirit would guide us into the truth, that you would help us to know, Lord, what we need to do. Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us of our sin. Father, that we would repent, that we would change our minds, that you would enable us, Lord, um, to move forward in our life. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for this body. We pray, Lord, also that as we take communion, as we go forward, that we would uh, be a light unto you. Father, that when you give us opportunities to share the gospel, Lord, that you would help us to, to have the courage to respond. We thank you, Lord, that this work is in your hands. We just need to be obedient. We just need to sow seed. We're not responsible for the growth. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.